Hello and welcome to the Me and My Golf podcast. We're your hosts and PGA golf coaches, Piers Ward and Andy Prabhu. Each week we're going to share with you our 20 plus years of coaching experience to bring you top tips, the latest information and trends, along with some of the world's best in the golf industry to help you play the best golf of your life. So what are we waiting for? Let's get to it and help you take charge of your game. Right then, Mike, Kyle, thanks for thanks so much for joining us today. We're at the World Golf Fitness Summit. It's been a pretty good couple of days, hasn't it? You having a good time? Yes, it's a huge show for us, obviously, to get all these like minds together. And uh, we get to see them every two years. We wish it was every year for us. But <laughs> all, the T- all the TPI has done is really huge for the support we've gotten from the whole audience, including all the staff from TPI. And, we are really happy to be on the show with you guys today, too. Excellent, excellent. Now, look, five years since you started Super Speed. And we're going to talk, obviously, a little bit about what it is and what, you know, what benefits it has for people. But how did you come about this idea? How did you guys meet up and come up with this fantastic idea, which has taken the, the tours and the world by storm? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, Kyle and I have been working together for a long time now um, uh, from a coaching perspective. I mean, I'm a golf coach. Kyle's a health wellness professional, I'd say, you know, mostly on the rehab side and, and high performance training side. So we were coaching golfers together for a long time, trying to help people get better and really designing, you know, TPI type programs around them where we're really looking at every aspect that's affecting their game and trying to be as detailed and comprehensive as we can to help these players get better. And then it's funny enough that we're at the World Golf Fitness Summit. It was actually first at the World Golf Fitness Summit that we heard uh, Dr. Tom House talk about overload underload training, what he was doing in baseball with weighted balls and helping you know pitchers develop arm speed. Um, that was the first time we heard about the concept. Like anything else, you hear a cool concept. We went back to our academies and, and we tested it on ourselves first, and we're like, wow, I just got a little faster. And then we tested it on all of our clients. We're like, wow, they're, they're all getting getting faster. And then. And we were fortunate because we had all the technology. We had all the 3D systems and launch monitors and things that we needed to really find out not only if people were going to get faster, but why they were getting faster and how we can make it even better. And what we determined there is that bringing it over from baseball had a few details that needed to be refined. Um, The biggest one was in how heavy the balls were in baseball that they were doing related to how heavy the golf clubs were that we were going to be using uh, to do overspeed training with, with golfers. We found a couple cool things there. Uh, we found that if you get too light, it, it doesn't really work. And some of the initial things that were being recommended was to use like a shaft by itself or an alignment stick. When you get too light, what we end up seeing is that you lose a lot of the lower body kinematics, you lose a lot of the ground force reaction. Just do all the arms. Yeah, it's all with the hands and arms because your body goes to kind of path of least resistance when you get something too light. So we found that there's a magic point there around 20% lighter than the driver where all of a sudden the kinematic sequence reappears. It's pretty much the same as that player's normal kinematic sequence. The other thing we found is that if you get too heavy, and this is the big one related to baseballs, because that baseball's in your hand, right? So when you're throwing a baseball, the end of the arc is just in your hand. So you can actually get a much heavier baseball and it doesn't change the difference in force that much. When all of a sudden it's 45 inches away from you, any amount of weight that you change 45 inches away from you in a golf swing makes a huge difference in the amount of resistance that you're going to have to overcome to make a change direction and move. Um, so we found that if you get much more than about 7-8% heavier than the driver, we actually start to see speeds go down again. And that's actually why um, 
you know, we changed the term from overload underload training, which was kind of the original idea of what this was called in other sports, to overspeed training back in 2014. Uh, we came up with that term because the true magic of the training is that all the swings you're making are much faster than the normal golf swing. Even with that club slightly heavier than the driver, you're still, because of the reset we do neurologically with those lighter clubs, you're still going a lot faster than your normal golf swing when you get to that heavy club. That's why we now call it overspeed training. But that's basically the story. I mean, we really have, you know, again, you know, here at the World Golf Fitness Summit, TPI to be thankful for, for introducing the concept to us. We took that concept, refined it, and really optimized it to help people increase their swing speed. So ju just go through the super speed clubs, because obviously there's three in there, isn't there? Yeah. Guys, we'll cut that again, sorry. Just forgot, I got that um, Yeah, so we'll go into the overspeed. Might be good to go into the overspeed first. Just talk a little bit about what the overspeed is. So have Mike do that, and then I'll do the, the club. Yeah. I'll talk about the clubs. So yeah, 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 I'll go into the overspeed, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, Mike, for the, for the guys who've not heard of super speed or overspeed training, could you give a, a brief summary of what actually overspeed training is and what it is going to do for the, for, the, for the golfer at home? Yeah, absolutely. So overspeed training is primarily a neurological training system where we're taking a motion that player knows how to do, in this case the golf swing, and we're resetting the normal reaction speed uh, that their body's going to go through when they pull the trigger. And you know, coaches see this all the time. Like, if you ask a player to you know, give me an 80% swing, it changes by like a mile an hour, it goes down a mile an hour. You tell them to really get after one, that probably goes down a mile an hour too, because they don't really know how to create that energy speed. So what we've learned from this is that the golf swing has a normal reaction speed when you pull the trigger, and it's very hard to consciously change that. So we do that by altering these weights of the club. So for example, with our system, a player that swings at 100 miles an hour, when they pick up our green club, it's 20% lighter than their driver, we can actually get that player to swing upwards of 118, 119 miles an hour, so a lot faster. Now if you ask them, and they don't have a monitor or something there to see it, it doesn't feel that different to them, and that, that's the trick here. We're, we're like tricking the neurological system into creating a faster muscular reaction in the body uh, to that motor pattern. Then we add a little bit of weight. Now with the 10% light club, they're still gonna be swinging around 115. You go to that red club that's 5% heavier than their driver. What's crazy here is we still see that player swinging about 110 to 112 miles an hour. So that's way faster than that normal swing they started with with 100 miles an hour. Um, but that's how overspeed training works. That's why we call it overspeed training. It's all faster than what they're normally doing in their golf swing. Now, if you had that player hit balls right after that training, and you go back and put all the skill elements back in and ask them to line it up and try to hit it down the fairway, on average, we're not going to see them be at 112, but we'll see about a 5% gain in club speed uh, really right after that first session. Yeah. So obviously, the, we used to see years ago the heavy clubs, so the really heavy weighted clubs that people would say that you know you swing those and you'll, be, you'll swing the club faster. Now we know obviously science has told us that this isn't the case. Do you still get any resistance from people saying that with the you know that the heavy clubs are still the way to go? Yeah, we get it all the time. Golf, not as much. Uh, we're in baseball now, and that. Uh, is so far behind golf. So they're still using those donuts on the bats in the on-deck circle. And sports science, if you guys are familiar with that out there, has done actual studies on this and TPI about, okay, let's see what's happening with your normal bat speed or normal club head speed. Let's see how fast you're swinging these, you know, during the training. Let's see the post results. And we've also done this ourselves. And every time it goes down afterwards. So 
if you're looking to decrease club head speed, that's a good way to go if you want to do a lot of reps with a heavy club. Now, it, it may help for some muscle activation for a few reps, but it's not a speed training tool, and I think that's what a lot of people did. And then you're also seeing some kinematic changes, like Mike said, where maybe the arms are lagging way behind the pelvis because it's so heavy. So you also see dispersion changes or mechanical issues crop up with these heavy clubs. Absolutely. I mean, so, so if someone wants to, to go through this process, because obviously we're going to get to a case that I've done with some of my students, yep. and we'll talk about that in a moment, but how does someone go through this process? Obviously, there are three clubs, yep. but there's different protocols. So what, in a nutshell, how would you tell the, the, the listeners what they would uh, look to expect? Sure. So before someone starts, we're looking for uh, the user to get a baseline speed. So we want to know what you're starting at so you have a record of how much you're gaining during the protocol. So uh, make sure you get that on a launch monitor or a, a swing speed radar, which we use is very in inexpensive. Um, but we have three clubs, a 20% lighter than driver, a 10% lighter than driver, and a 5% heavy, like Mike said. And we're trying to match the player into as close as we can to their own game driver. So uh, we have a men's set, a women's set, senior set, junior set. And once they get their proper set, then we have uh, protocols built out. So um, we're always working light to heavy through the system. So for example, our first level is just three swings through each club on your dominant and non-dominant side in a standing position, and then three swings through each in like a step forward type of position. I think you guys call it the thunder step, yeah, we do. which we want to steal from you. Or, you know, it just sounds so much better, doesn't it? It does. I think we actually put that in our kids' protocol. We like that yeah, term, the thunder step. It is. You got you to gotta get it. Shake yeah. the ground. Um, yeah, so it's very quick. Only like six to eight minutes to do, but it's like a flat out sprint. Like you're going all out intense. Mike is always yelling at people. I'm a little softer when we're doing it, but he's like, come on, you got more than that. And drill instructor. Yeah, drill instructor. He loves oh, to hammer them. The LPGA them. Tour players hate me. Like, right out there in the middle of the range at, 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 at a tournament and she had this quiet little girl like going through her thing and I'm like, no, that's Shazam. not right. Like, that's way too pretty. Too you pretty, get too careful, yeah. I want you falling over at the end. Like, I'm, I'm trying to help people. When we're doing that, it's not, you know, we laugh about it, but trying to get people more athletic in the way they swing the golf club is hard because especially elite players have trained in being so careful and precise with the way they're swinging the golf club that in order to really get change, especially when we're talking about efficiency and trying to get more speed out of them, I mean, we have to get them outside of their comfort zone and really get them outside of the box learning how to break through those athletic barriers there are many times holding them back from getting more speed. Yeah, and it's interesting, we had Mark Blackburn on um, previous to yourselves, and he was talking about the, the most impressive driver of the golf ball he's seen was Dustin Johnson before he fell down the stairs. And he said, but he'd never seen anyone hit the golf ball so well and so straight. And obviously DJ is one of the most athletic guys out there. And he said close to him was obviously Brooks, who's another guy who just absolutely yep. smashes the golf ball, but hits it very, very straight as well. So developing that athleticism and not maybe trying to get everything looking so perfect and, and controlled is is a key thing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think there's just a lot to that in that there's those myths that we have about the golf swing that the left heel has to stay planted and the feet shouldn't slide around. I mean, these things are much more personal to different players. And if you go back through history and look at a lot of the players that have hit the ball a long way before, you know, the modern guys you're talking about now, they weren't all so precise either with the way the mechanics work. It's yeah. like we got into this system for uh, golf instruction for a long time where we had all these positions and all these things needed to be perfect. And now we're kind of getting back toward the point of let's figure out how to be athletic, how to transfer energy efficiently 
you know, we've started to look at ground reaction forces in a much different way and how do we get the most energy transfer out of the ground, not just necessarily how do we make sure that we hold that perfect finish after every single swing we do. And what we're finding there is that there's a lot of ways to increase speed and a lot of modern golf coaching um, tends to train speed out of the swing in order for everything to look more stable. But yeah. sometimes when you see these players like a Dustin Johnson or Brooks, I mean, number one, I mean, they're not just kind of butting it out there. I mean, these guys are major athletes creating incredible amount of speed. And yeah, so I think, I think that's a very big deal. What we're finding in, in a lot of the research we're continuing to do and, and looking at um, is that the two are actually, accuracy and efficiency, speed, these things are connected. Okay, so what we see a lot of times is as players become more efficient, they are able to transfer energy throughout their body, through the ground and all of this more efficiently, we actually tend to find that that becomes a much more repeatable pattern for them. Repeatable patterns are linked directly to consistency. So we're, we're working on proving this with actual research studies right now, but it's going to be wild when, when that day does come. And the theory is there, and I'm fully behind it, that the more efficient that player becomes, they're going to become more powerful, more accurate, more consistent, and all of those aspects are going to get better all at the same time, which is what we're seeing clinically with a lot of the players we work with. Yeah, so I think it certainly helps having players like DJ and Brooks who don't necessarily swing it. Um, let's say somebody like somebody like a Nick Faldo or someone who's very precise. Yeah. I mean, those guys really are are the, the modern golfer, aren't they? Who are bringing the athleticism to golf and showing that actually you don't have to be playing within those realms and you can hit it a long way and you can hit it straight when you when you're hitting that far as well. So I think it's uh, those guys certainly help that, don't they? We um, just to add to that. So you know we're studying the collegiate game and the web and what's coming up through the ranks here and. For instance, last year's uh, NCAA Player of the Year, Norman Zhang from Oregon, is averaging 130 miles an hour club at speed or over, and he's hitting 80% of his fairways out there. You've got Cameron Champ, who's at like 132, just got his PGA Tour card. Like, what we're seeing at these speeds, 120 used to be like, oh my goodness, we got the 120, now it's 130. And these guys are hitting it straight, too. And it's impressive to go out there and watch these guys and what they can do. And, you know, we've spoke about this a lot, and you've got to look at technology. We all talk about it, modern-day technology, you know, hitting a, a, a 460cc drive ahead where you know you can hit it in lots of different places and still get it near the target. You know, that's got to play a big role in it. But I think, I think this is a great sort of... Um, question to you guys for any of the parents of children who are, who are listening to this and about how they want to get their their children into golf because I, I know for a fact we've you know, we've all been on driving range we've all coached juniors to the point where the parents will very much be saying about you know the technique is important and you must you know you must learn to hit it straight first and we know it's the exact opposite of that it's it's about creating that speed that physical literacy whatever you want to call it and actually get them to hit the ball a long way but how do you guys go through with juniors how do you actually get them to buy into this and the parents more importantly which is actually the key yeah i mean i can tell you i mean our <coughs> philosophy about coaching juniors number one we're trying to create athletes okay if those athletes at some point decide they want to be a professional golfer i want to make sure they have every physical attribute that can make them the most elite golfer they possibly can and to be honest if they want to go play baseball or they want to go play i mean they have the opportunity once they're an athlete like that to play just about whatever sport they want um i think that's huge you know our junior golf programs at our academies when we were, when we were doing a lot more coaching 
I mean, we had players playing all different kinds of sports in those and all kinds of athletic development. We had them swinging right-handed, left-handed, playing golf right-handed and left-handed. I mean, we were trying to create the best, most balanced and, and elite athletes we possibly could. And I think you see that, you know, with these guys we're talking about. A lot of these guys coming out on tour now easily could have been collegiate level athletes in multiple sports. And, you know, golf's now getting them as opposed to, I mean, let's be honest, I mean, 30 years ago it would have been Brooks Kepka probably would be a baseball player. You know, he might not have been a golfer, but now we've got these athletes in the golf realm because it, it, it's this very cool sport, very power sport that people want to play. Um, I think the biggest things with juniors, you know, like you mentioned, are the parents. Um, one thing we always did in our junior programs is we actually had parent education seminars that went along with them. So we actually were there you know, more classroom setting, we, we'd let them observe, and we wanted to get the parents away from the kids a lot during the programs too. But we'd actually go through, look, this is what you're gonna see your kids doing. This is why I've got your, you know, 12 year old swinging left-handed trying to hit drives on the fairway. You know, this is what that's gonna do from a motor pattern learning sensation. This is what it's gonna do for motor control of the body. You know, this is why he's kicking soccer balls and throwing baseballs. We're doing all these physical things for stability and, and I think that was big. Because, you know, it requires being good at, at, I would say, teaching people how that works. And you have to understand that, that information enough to be able to explain it to people. But once you get the parents to buy in, um, they see those results with their kids. They see their kids having way more fun in those programs. And the kids want to keep coming back. And, and, I mean, that's the biggest thing. I mean, of course it is, yeah. Yeah, if they're going to have fun and they're going to come back every week, the parents get on board with that. I mean, there's always going to be your outliers, but education, fun, and creating athletes. That's what junior golf is all about. Yeah, and I think it's its interesting because there is, there's definitely been a shift in the game over the last few years, obviously, with you know people like, as we've mentioned, guys coming on the scene. And I think in the past, golf hasn't been viewed as an athletic, as an athletic sport, so the, the parents of these kids haven't really thought about it as that sport, so they're just thinking, well, you need to just play golf and be good at golf and specialise in that. So it's going to take a little bit of time until golf is just accepted as, again, an athletic sport. And I think obviously the, the work you guys are doing and the, the, the research that you guys are doing, it's obviously going in the right direction. So for, for the guys who are listening to this, if, if they're interested in, 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 let's say they want to increase their speed and they, they say, okay, I want to you know, get some super speed, how often, or what would a, a typical week would look like? If, for the average guy who plays once a week, what, what, would, what would you recommend that those guys do? How often should they keep it up and what, what gains are they, are they expected to see? Sure. So uh, I mentioned before, it's a very short condensed, uh, about six to eight minutes with the program, and we have over a year's worth of training built out for them. So if you want to get this, this product, we're going to support you in keeping going with it, not just shelving in the garage after a month and not having anything to do with it. Um, but we have uh, training cycles kind of periodized like a workout program where we give you your reps, your sets, and how many times a week you can do it. So three times a week is the sweet spot. If you can get three times a week with a day off in between, six to eight minutes, you're golden. And if somebody doesn't have that, then they really don't want to get better. I think that's pretty simple for them. Uh, two times minimum if they can get there. And each training block goes in about six to eight weeks. So you'll go up, you'll plateau, and then you go to your next level. Just like a workout, you have to change the reps or change the exercise. Otherwise, you're kind of flatline. So, excuse me, sorry, when you say plateau, so obviously the speed goes up, 
yep. stays and then goes up again it, when you start it can go a different up again break. correct there but there is a a time frame where in the beginning it will go up and then go back down but after about six weeks you'll start to see as mike said that five percent increase become more of a permanent change in the brain so we're looking for enough repetition, but not too much, so that we can start to train the neuromuscular system to have a faster speed. And so six weeks is that sweet spot if we can get there. Then the next jump will come in the next six to eight weeks where you'll kind of do that flat line for a while, rise, and then plateau again. So it's not just a gradual increase throughout every week. Uh, we want you to know kind of sometimes you have to stick out a couple weeks, won't see as much, and then all of a sudden, bam, week four, I just shot right back up again. So six to eight weeks through each protocol, but the first three months we're gonna see the biggest gains happen. And we've had people, you know, on average, obviously like a five mile an hour, all the way up to 25, 30 mile an hour gains. So it kind of depends on where they're starting, where they're at, but if you do it correctly, you will see the gains. There's, there's no one that we don't have that doesn't experience some level of, of good increase. Yeah, absolutely. Now look, we, we did a, um, we did a, a seven week, it turned into a seven week case study with eight golfers, eight, eight of my clients, along with doing some uh, sort of um, golf fitness around that yep. as well, along with doing the super speed. And out of all eight, all eight improved. I know two, two of them I couldn't actually retest because two got injured during the process, but not doing the process. <laughs> I told you I told you yesterday, Carl, one guy got injured at work and the other guy got injured trying to do a bicycle kick on a football field. Um, <laughs> that is cruciate. But, but the other guys, they all experienced improvement. And yep. I think for, for me as well, when we were going through this, there were, for one of the guys, and this was a good golfer, a scratch golfer, it was an intent that actually changed with him as well. So because we, we had the intent of actually going for more speed, there was 100%, there was, a, there was an improvement in his speed just by thinking, okay, I'm just gonna actually have a go at hitting this a little bit harder anyway. Yep. And, I, and I'm sure that's something that you see. Um, one of the other guys improved basically because he, the, the technique, his technique improved whilst yep. doing this as well, which is again something that I'm sure that you've seen. And the biggest gain that we had was a five mile per hour club head speed in an iron. So that was for, for, big that, that, that was that was huge. Yeah. That was huge. But again, I look at this and go, well, is that anything down to do with his intent, with his technique improving? Because that's something that I, I listened to you yesterday as well, Mike, talking about this. That technique does change whilst doing this, but obviously for the better. Yes. So we like to stay as pure as we can. That you know, the majority of the protocol we put out is all for speed training and. You know, I'm just going to use some percentages here. I, we don't have these proven, but I would account maybe about 70% for most of those players that that really what's changing there is that neuromuscular reaction speed. So resetting the motor pattern speed, about 70% of the training on average. Now it's going to be different for different players, obviously, but that, it's the majority of them. Now, depending on where that player is starting, let's say it's a player that doesn't use the ground well. Okay. Well, many of the drills that we have really work on ground force and, and improving ground force and ground reaction force. So if it's a player that used the ground really badly when they started, there's a good chance that's going to improve. Okay. Now, if it's a player that already uses the ground really, really well, that might not be where they get some improvement there. You're still getting the neurological benefit. Same thing goes for a player that doesn't sequence well. If they're their rotational sequencing isn't that, that good, that's most likely going to improve because you know, the kinematic sequence is a really cool thing. It, it works in two ways though, in, in my opinion. If you have a player that's powerful, 
that you're taking their kinematic sequence. You're probably going to see, you know, that good sequencing order of pelvis, thorax, arm, club, and the peaking order in the same way. That's a really common correlation that we see with really powerful ball strikers. The other thing's the same too. If you give a player the goal of, I want you to make this move as fast as you can, after some time of practicing that, there's really no way to do it without improving the way you're sequencing. Your kinematic sequence is going to improve because it has to if you're going to make that move faster. So that sort of converse look at that from a coaching standpoint and a goal standpoint is something that I really like to talk about. And I think simple goals that accomplish big, complex tasks are the gold standard for coaching in, in many, many ways. And then the same thing goes for lag and wrist release in the golf swing. If you have a player that, that does have poor wrist release or is casting, they're not going to be able to move the club very fast down to the hitting zone. So if that's the only thing they're working on and practicing, they're probably going to figure out a lot of the details of how to load, unload the, the wrist segment to get better lag in the golf swing. So yes, I think the primary thing is that neurological benefit, but those other pieces, depending on where that player's starting and where they have deficiencies, you can see some huge improvements in those type of uh, swing characteristics. I think it's really important as well, obviously the ideal thing with these super speeds really is that if you can combine this with your coach, with your coaching, you're going to see the, you're going to see the maximum benefit because obviously with, a, with one of the super speed sticks, you've got no club face on there. So we all know that your club face will have a massive impact on your sequencing in the downswing as well. So I, I suppose for somebody who has poor sequencing or who struggles to get the maximum energy to the golf ball because of poor club face or swing mechanics, Having the coaching with your pro to address those, combining that with the super speed is, is obviously massively important to continue to get the most out of it from the speed side of things, but also out of the technique side of things as well. Absolutely, I, again, I, our goal is to help people increase swing speed. Um, now, I think that's definitely that ability to have a good coach that's going to be able to kind of refine some of the details around that it's all going to be case specific and depending on what that player needs um, you know we know we can help people increase swing speed some players are going to need maybe need a little additional help to you know maybe adjust or improve some of the deficient skills that they have associated with the game to help them play better um, but yeah we've actually done that on purpose and you know it's a really interesting I'm sure a, Another study that, that we did as we were going, and I think it's really interesting, and that's when we decided not to hit balls doing this type of training, because we initially did have some testing where we could actually hit balls doing this. Uh, TPI did a great study with this too, and what we found in that was really intriguing. And that was the higher the level of player, the better the, like the more elite the skill of the player, the worse the results were with overspeed training while hitting balls, okay? Now that might seem really odd, to you, but here, here's what that is, and, and you guys have probably seen this. And you get a PGA Tour player, and you put a ball down in front of them, and you have a, even a, at a driving range. It is really hard to get them to do a lot of things drastically different because they go into that mode of that ball's got to go as far down that fairway as I can get it. And it's got to be in the middle. Okay, so it's like that, that they're so honed into that motor pattern and that goal. That it's very hard to get them to change and. and again, break through maybe athletic barriers that are holding them back. Now you take a ranked beginner that basically has no skill, right? They were seeing about the same gains as they would if they weren't hitting a ball, because it didn't matter. They didn't have those ingrained motor patterns. They didn't have that you know, precision and goal that they had to get it down there. So again, as, as the athlete got more skilled, we saw worse results hitting a ball. 
So then when we tested it without hitting a ball, and we saw consistent results across the entire skill spectrum, and that was, we felt like a huge piece of this whole training. Uh, it was interesting, we were talking with some of the guys from uh, Driveline who do a lot of baseball testing, and it, it's interesting, is they saw exactly the same thing testing athletes in baseball, um, doing different types of training that are similar to this, and using some of our products as well. They, they saw that the higher level of the athlete, the less results they got when they were actually doing this live, hitting hitting balls, and they actually took it further. They saw better results in soft toss than they did at a pitching machine, and then they saw even better results without hitting a ball at all than they did with soft toss. So it's really interesting to see how that, that works and that pattern goes uh, with the results of the training. So yeah, I mean, look, it, it's obviously benefiting a lot of people, but on, on the tours that at the moment, do you know how many people are actually using these things? Everywhere I go now, I see people swinging the sticks and yeah. you know some really good players as well. So who who do you know that you've got using at the moment and that you work with? Uh, Five hundred at least current tour players around the world, including men and women. Wow. Hundred full status players. Um, we get pictures from most of them. We don't pay anyone, so they're all just putting it in their bag because their coach told them they found it from another player. They wanted it. So uh, luckily, we've got to work with tons of them in person, build them programs, get them situated. Um, Very cool. You've seen Mickelson out there, Poulter on the range, Tiger just got a set, so. Very nice. It's been pretty cool for us. Very to, nice. Have you had to deal with him personally or? His trainer, okay. through his trainer, yeah. Okay, very but good. A lot of the other guys personally, yeah. And, and, and how do they, how do the players perceive it? Are they, are they doing it because, so this is the question I suppose, are they doing it because they've seen someone else doing it or do they really feel that that's something that they need themselves, they feel that's where the game's going, especially on the PGA Tour? Well generally the players that want a little more distance are approaching us. So we're not getting like the, the ultra fast ones yet um, because they feel like they're kind of maxed out. But it's the ones that feel like if I got three more miles an hour, I'm going to have a, a club, a club and a half, two clubs less in. Or I'm playing with DJ and Brooks. I had one that came up to me and he played a practice round with DJ and Brooks in the, in the FedEx Cup. He said, man, I'm hitting like five irons when they're hitting nine irons, pitching wedges, and I'm not even that accurate. So I'm in the rough hitting five irons and they're in the fairway with wedges and I just, I can't compete on courses like that. And so he was around maybe 111 or so. And I know that we can get you up to 114, 115, which even a couple miles an hour for that for those guys is huge, like I said. So I think it kind of just spreads through, but they are getting results too. And we just want to make sure that we work with their coach, we work with their trainer. How can we implement it in this you know, massive travel schedule and everything else that they have in their lives? And if they do it, they're getting the results. So for some of the, even some of the, let's say the senior golfers out there, the older guys, this would you say that this is just a great tool for them to just maintain some speed so obviously as we, as we get older we're going to lose some speed is it you know is that just something that some of the older guys are using because they just want to keep that level that they're at Pierce probably you're in this bracket at the moment I would say um, I mean yeah is that that's something again a good thing again yeah I think actually that population is one of the one of the senior population we see some of the biggest gains in, yeah in, in many reasons because as, you know as we get older there is a little bit of degradation in, in different physical systems that are going to cause a little bit of loss of speed, but there's also a lot of neurological blocks that get in there. Like, you know, anytime we get injured, you know, our brain starts to protect itself, and we protect ourselves from range of motion, we protect ourselves from, you know, many of the different forces that go through our body during an athletic motion, especially one as explosive as the golf swing. So, players that have been at a certain speed before and have just lost it, 
and for various different reasons, are one of those populations that get it back faster than most. Um, so yes, I definitely think, I think, you know, I, the Champion Store in the U.S., it, it's probably one of our most prolific areas of all those players doing this, and you know, a lot of those guys in their, in their 50s and early 60s are still bombing it out there. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes people go to those Champion Store events to you know, almost see something that's more more attainable to more closer to what their game is, and yeah, they still see these guys hit the 320 out on the fairway. So it's a it's a wild process, but yeah, that's a huge population for it. Yeah, it's interesting the way the game is going for sure. So I, I think this would be good a good time as well to actually talk to to give anyone who's listening to this any myths they may have heard already about not not just super speed but you know swinging fast and things like that because often myself and Andy will have guys come to us and say that my, my playing partner say I'm swinging too fast and we're like okay yeah of course you are um, you know when they're swinging at 95 miles an hour at best so I definitely be good to go through some myths and questions that you've had in the past I know I've got two that I answered to my case study that I did first one was is this going to affect my golf swing in a negative way and also the next one would be if you can answer both of these why can i only train every other day why can't i train seven days a week yeah so first yeah yeah i i, I can take the first one um you know, we really don't see negative impact of this training on, on the swing the only thing that we'll hear from time to time uh, is players that feel like after the training they have a hard time getting the face closed so they'll leave the ball to the right a little bit more especially right out makes and, sense and one of the main reasons for that is we see that in players who don't sequence well so players that aren't rotating well through the swing and aren't creating as much speed in their body really just have never learned the skill of how to square the face at impact so this just ends up making that a little bit more extreme for a few swings but you know with higher level players because there's plenty of high level players that don't rotate that well through the swing too we see it takes about four swings for them to hone that in and with more of your amateur players uh, uh, you know some simple drills with face control were what we used to do with our players and we'd have all of our players doing face control drills. it's one of the most important things you can do in the golf swing um, and, you know to get better at the game of golf overall but if you couple that little type of training in with the speed training again now you're going to be hitting it further and straighter and that's a full win um, yeah and then you have that overzealous golfer, which is almost all of them out there. Buyer system, I'm getting great results. Can I train every day, twice a day, three times a day? Like, if I do more, can I get more out of it? And we have to get the reins back on a lot of these guys. So, think about it in more of an exercise terminology for the guys out there. This is a neurological training, like we said. So, I know you guys are in the gym a lot. When you're doing power movements, uh, plyometrics, Olympic lifting, you're taxing a different part of your body. So. If you're doing strength training, stability training, you have much quicker of a recovery period. And so you may feel sore, but you can get back in the gym the next day and still get that, or even do a two-a-day workout. But when you're working with the brain and the nervous system, it takes far longer to recover. So we want that day in between to be able to recover so that when you get to your next session, you're not sloppy or slowing down and going backwards. So I have yet to see anyone train back-to-back -back days be faster on that second day than they were the first. And I've yet to see anyone get more results training more than three times a week than just training three times a week. So we haven't seen any benefit. Really take that time that don't get injured. Make sure you're fresh for your next session. Yeah, less is more with this type of training. I guess would be another way to put yeah. it. Yeah, you want a low number of reps as intense as possible, and you want each one of those reps to be perfect and maxed out. Um, more of that 
as it just gets sloppy later on isn't necessarily any benefit to the training. And that's great for the, for the, list, the guys listening to this because, you know, ultimately they want to be hitting balls, they want to be practicing, and if it takes two, three times a week, six to eight minutes, you know, each time, I mean, that's that's music to their ears. They haven't yeah. got to go and spend, you know, six hours in the gym every week and, and, and sort of have this sort of long process. They can see the, the results faster, and yep. like you say, if you haven't got six, eight minutes a week, three times a week, then, you know, you're not that serious about improving your speed, are you? Yep. I think I think the interesting thing is that uh, sorry actually any any other any other myths or any I think other? the one that we were just talking about about you know this the the myth of if I try to hit it straight where does it go the myth of if I try to hit it far where does it go and uh, we mentioned uh, Stephen Buzza who's out there I think he's done some great work he had to do a master's thesis actually giving verbal cues to golfers on. Um, what happens if you hit a normal drive? What happens if you hit a drive where you're cueing yourself to hit it straight or be as most accurate as possible? What happens when you try to hit it as far as possible? And the results overwhelmingly were, if you hit it, try to hit it straight, you hit it more crooked and shorter. If you tried to hit it long, you hit it actually more accurate and you got the distance out of it. So short, you don't want to be short and crooked. I'd rather be at least long and a little bit crooked, but these guys are actually hitting it straight and getting the distance. So those verbal cues inside, I think, have gotten mixed up. Or if uh, the game is not, I just need to hit it down the fairway and tell myself that you can still get the accuracy, but actually get more distance out of it. And the game's more fun if you have a wedge in instead of a hybrid. It's interesting that piece because just, that's just made us think about something. Um, a couple of days ago, we were doing some stuff with John Rahm, obviously an incredible driver of the yeah. golf ball. You know, some great speed. Um, very accurate as well and um, stupidly enough myself and Pierce took him on in a long driving contest and we hadn't really had too many warm-ups uh, we, I think we had three shots each and we we're on one of the holes down in uh, South Florida and we were going like as hard as we can go we get you know we got up to sort of 120 um, club speed but we hit two shots each and these shots were like just bullet straight and we we're like hang on a minute we just we just go full out on these and these shots are just going bullet straight down there so I think Sometimes, again, the misconceptions of, of these golfers is that, you know, if I swing slow, I'm going to get it straighter, but, you know, experiment on the range, yeah. have some shots where you are going after it and just see what happens. And, it's, you know, it's not always going to, you know, be as bad as you obviously think it is. If it is, then you need to a little bit of coaching yeah. as well. But that's, that's you know, really the doesn't speed. doesn't mean shelf it. Exactly, yeah, it doesn't mean shelf it. But, <laughs> yeah, that experiment, we lost, by the way, but that was uh, no surprise there either, really. No, that, that's, that's too bad that you guys lost. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's really another interesting just point on that type of thing to bring up for people is that when you're trying to hit it straight, you have this, like, goal of either trying to, you know, really control the club face or steer it or those type of things. Um, it's definitely not the best athletic position to, to play golf. And you know, there have been studies on, on like brain activity, on, on what you see in tour players, what you see in amateurs, and when you see when you're trying to do a drill or when you have different types of goals. And one of the things that I find to be very interesting um, with that is that what you really want is you want that almost reactionary kind of uh, state that your body's in when you're really in maximum performance. Uh, we see this a lot with like our, our baseball players. Um, you know, looking at these these high level baseball players, it's easy to be reactionary in baseball because you get a ball flying at you at 95 miles an hour. You know, if we had golf balls flying at us at 95 miles an hour, we'd have much more reactionary golfers too. Okay? And, and it's a really interesting. <laughs> Maybe thing. we should try that. <laughs> it's, How can we fix it's like Happy Gilmore getting the cage. <laughs> so you have like the, the conscious thought that's going on when a major league baseball player standing up there is very little. It's very reactionary, instinctual, if you will. 
we want that for our golfers too. And you definitely see that trend with a lot of these guys, like a John Rahm or these these really powerful players. Is they're very their minds in that same kind of reactionary, instinctual kind of state when they're hitting, versus being in that type of state where they're really trying to control all the aspects of the system and trying to hit the ball straight. They're just up there reacting yeah. and making that move. That's provisional ball, isn't it, Pierce? That's very similar to a provisional ball. You hit the first one, you're trying to get it in the fairway, you peg one up with no real thought, very instinctively, and you, you know you always drive it down the middle of the fairway. Um, but I mean, look, I mean, some really interesting stuff. I mean, you know, some of the work that you guys are doing is fantastic, and I'm sure a lot of the guys um, listening to this, if they're interested in, in gaining some speed, I think you know this is certainly a way to go. And from from the protocols that you you guys do, they're quite fun to do as well. Which yep. is, you know, we've been through some of those and. Uh, working at those is uh, it's, it's very simple, very easy, very fun. What you need to do is you need to make sure you check out the caser that we've done, which is going up on YouTube. If you want to see some fun, you need to see some of my guys swinging with their non-dominant hands. <laughs> it was uh, quite uh, quite laughable, really. But, but the, actually, the improvement they made through the process, actually, you know, the, especially on the non-dominant side, the speeds they were able to gain were actually very impressive. So I'm quite fun to start with. Yeah, I'm curious about about that too. Like, where did you get your how the non-dominant side? match up toward the end of your, your seven weeks? Um, I would say it probably did, it wasn't far off, it wasn't far off by the time it got to the seventh, seventh week, but I would say it was. It still looks ungainly, but speed-wise it was getting up there probably after about four or five weeks. Yeah. So, so about four or five weeks. I'll just share some interesting stuff. Some of our long drive uh, athletes that we've worked with, I've seen multiple guys now that can swing above 150 miles an hour both both ways. Okay, so as you get to your elite athletes, we actually see Incredible. a lot of these players are within, you know, after after a little bit of time with the training, because obviously the coordination takes a little bit of time to learn, but we'll generally see these players within about a mile an hour at the same speed, both on their dominant and non-dominant side, uh, which I think is pretty wild. Uh, most people, the first time they do it, can't believe that that's possible, but I'm telling you, like, the best athletes in the world, the guys that have been doing this and, and have the fastest club speeds are almost there. It's like that 200 yard six iron I hit uh, left handed and you remember that one? I do, yeah, that was, that was a lucky one, I don't know what happened there to be fair. <laughs> Uh, guys, great. Look, thanks very much for your time. Um, for the guys at home listening to this, um, if they want to know more about Superspeed, where do they go? Superspeedgolf.com. We've got all the information there. Also, social media, very active on there. Uh, so follow us, post about us, whatever you want to do. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Great to see you. Good luck again with all the you know, continued work. And um, Pierce, good luck to you as well. Yeah, you know what, guys? It's, it's, it's been a pleasure working with you so far. and absolutely can't wait to see what you guys have in store for the future as well. Oh, absolutely. With you guys too. And, and good luck with all your ventures. And uh, thanks for having us on. Pleasure. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Let's do some more work in, yep. in the future for sure. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Me and My Golf podcast. We hope you enjoyed that and got some value from that. And if you did, then please share that episode with a friend. And if you can do us a real big favor and head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It really does help this podcast grow and reach more golfers. And our mission is to help as many golfers around the world as we can play some better golf. So it really would mean a lot to us. One question that we get asked a lot is, Andy Pierce, how can we get coaching from you? Well, now you can have myself and Pierce as your very own personal online golf coach. And we've created a, a platform that infuses our coaching experience and philosophy into a fantastic community that's packed full of weekly videos that will really help transform your golf. We've got coaching plans on specific areas in the game. We have a shot fixer section, which really enables you to fix your faults fast so you can see results immediately on the golf course. 
and we really want to build a a tribe of golfers that are committed to playing the best golf of their lives and like I say now this is the closest thing that you're going to experience to get me and Pierce on the lesson tee with you and we'd love to have you part of this fantastic community so head over to meandmygolf.com and look have a go we have a 14 day free trial that you can take advantage of see what it's like and if it fits right for you then fantastic and we'll hope to see you there thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time on the me and my golf podcast